All right, folks, here it is. The reason you have an internet connection, my podcast, one guy sitting in a room surrounding himself with an echo chamber of things that he already agrees with. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience here on this podcast, isn't it? It's cathartic for me, and it reaffirms my biases because, of course, everybody knows that's the best way to get to the objective truth is only what Oscar Wilde say there's a Oscar Wilde quote that's like I can I believe anything I'll tell I believe anything I tell myself as long as it's what I want to hear <laughs> and with that note we're starting another episode of the podcast holy shit welcome to the QTR podcast this podcast first and foremost is brought to you by my patrons patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons. I'll give you two rules for the podcast and then we'll be on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been dealing in gold and silver for about a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They are the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion from. It's the only place I've bought gold and silver bullion from. For a couple years now, uh, I love their service. They always have great inventory. They are notoriously quick in turning around my orders. You know, maybe I'm just getting the VIP treatment so I don't talk shit. But uh, everybody that I know that has gone there has had similar uh, good experiences with them. And if you are maybe new to buying gold and silver bullion, or if you just want to talk to a person instead of going through the web, you can always email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. Laura is there exclusively for QTR podcast listeners. She will help you decide, you know, maybe what to get. Uh, She can help you deal with uh, pricing, things like that. Um, If you don't feel like, you know, maybe you're unfamiliar with ordering bullion or you've never done it before, you can always reach out to Laura. Of course, you can always check out jmbullion.com too, which is a great way to just, you know, if you are familiar with it and you don't want to deal with a person, some people just want to order their shit and be done with it. It's great to go through their website, easy to use, easy to navigate, like I said before, tons of inventory. Thank you guys so much for your support of JM Bullion. They have been supporting the podcast for a long time, and I love them. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room, formerly the Sang Lucci Steam Room, but now Sang Lucci is pushing their Trading the Post service. So, tradingthepost.com is what you want to check out. Tradingthepost.com. It's a new service brought to you by Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus. It's the name of the methodology created by Ron Friedman. Ron took his 20 years of trading experience, combined it with what he learned from Sanglucci, and created a process-oriented, rules-based approach to options trading. Trading the post can be used by investors, swing traders, and scalpers. I have no idea what it is, but what I can tell you is Sang Lucci and Charlie Bathgate and Wall Street Jesus, they know their shit, they're nice people, they're friends of mine, they're great people to do business with, and I will be checking out tradingthepost.com. I recommend you do as well. And if you ever want a discount or a free trial of anything that Lucci just does, just reach out to him directly. Tell him QTR sent you. He will make sure that you get taken care of. I swear to it. We have a, uh, a little agreement where my podcast listeners get taken care of with whatever they want because uh, that's how we fucking get down because we're boys like that, me and Lucci. This podcast also brought to you by Doomberg. Doomberg is one of my favorite new sub stacks to read. It is a blog that is a 
pretty much a skeptical take on the markets. They look at things through an Austrian lens, kind of the same way that we do, uh, but has made some great observations, the, not, not the least of which was their uh, oil to $300 uh, article that they put out a couple months ago, which was kind of, you know, laughed at a couple of months ago. But now, you know, oil is up, I think, probably about 100% since that article came out. I was just rereading it the other day. Doomberg is 100% free to read. Okay, so there's really, you know, you put your email in and you're done. That's it. Their link to their Substack is in my podcast description. You can also follow them at Doomberg T on Twitter for free insights. Check out my friends at Doomberg. Also, check out my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh, guys like Brent Johnson, to help bring you incredible content and help you preserve wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. They have wonderful forums, model portfolios that I love to take a look at all the time. Specifically, I like to follow Lynn Alden's model portfolios. That's the one I check in on the most. Um, I think that the forum is an invaluable resource and you get access to live question and answer sessions several times a week. George Gammon has an unbelievable amount of content on his site. You can even check out his YouTube YouTube channel, George Gammon, for free if you want to see what he's all about. But if you're interested in taking it one step further, check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. The link to that is in my podcast description. Just like all my other patrons, George Gammon, honest guy, good guy to do business with. And you can reach out to any of these people directly. Tell them I sent you. You want a discount. You want a free trial. They will make sure that you get it. I promise. If not, send them to me and we will have words. All right. (laughs) Although I don't anticipate it being a problem. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, my buddy Russ Valenti, just talking to you the other day, pal. We got to get together soon. Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, some of my newest patrons, people that have signed up on Patreon, Daniel Richard too, thank you, or Daniel Richard the second, Daniel, <laughs> Daniel Richard too. remember Trump was like, my favorite Bible verse, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, <laughs> John Sturdivant, thank you my brother, Benjamin Krogan, Victor Ramirez, Steve Gould, thank you for checking in brother, I see you, Howard and my buddy John Roberts, David Driesen, Nomad above and beyond. Thank you so much for your continued support. What would an episode be without mentioning Philip M. Crevis? Thank you for your continued support. Finally, M. Stillwell, Nicholas Witt, Dylan Davis, some people that have been with me for a while that I continue to appreciate. And uh, my buddy Pete Hedges. What's up, man? How's things going over at the Trader's Path? Love you to death. All right. This podcast has a two-drink minimum. I am not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations. None of this is a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. None of this is financial advice. Please don't listen to anything that I do or say. Don't come anywhere near this podcast. Rate it one star, please. Going for the world's worst podcast in history. It's something I can be proud of. And this way, when everybody talks shit, I could say, yeah, that's what I was going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah you fucking hate it? Oh, me. Not as much as I hate it myself, I promise you. <laughs> All right, let's get it started. All right, we have the man himself with me today. My favorite economist, Mr. Peter Schiff, is in the house. How are you today, sir? I'm doing okay. It's a beautiful day here in Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's nice. It's actually nice here in Philly today, too. It's a little chilly, but a good day to go for a run outside if you're a runner. Do you run at all? Well, not not too much. I mean, I was running for some tennis balls this morning. Oh, did you play tennis this morning? Yeah, I did. Are you any good? Uh, I mean, I'm all right. You know, you know my buddy Sang Lucci? 
Nope. Nope. Yeah, well, he's a good tennis player. So if you ever bump into him and we're ever all together, I should arm you both with rackets. Actually, I should do that with you and Michael Saylor, too. We should get you guys on the tennis court and have you settle your uh, – Well – have you settled your Bitcoin he, he, beef out there? He's afraid to afraid to engage me in any any manner, so I doubt he'd even want to play me in tennis. I saw your little. But he spat. probably has a better he has a better chance of beating me in tennis than a Bitcoin debate. That's for sure. I I saw your little spat with him online yesterday. You know, Peter, guys like Michael Saylor say, "Hey, listen, you know, when we had that last fifty percent or sixty percent or seventy percent drawdown in Bitcoin." Uh, you know, you were saying, oh, this is it. You know, how many times have you said so far, this is it, yet here we are at $63,000 of Bitcoin? And that's. Oh, no. I never look. I've never, I never say that it's it for sure. I mean, anything could happen with Bitcoin, especially given the degree to which the market is manipulated by guys like Sailor. I mean, look at how much Bitcoin he keeps buying. One of the main reasons the price came back is because Sailor was there buying. He's this huge bid in the market. And he's just buying continuously. So, uh, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, why isn't the price even higher? Yeah, but all you, these you guys are coming that, up with this. You can't call that manipulation. You can't call that market manipulation, though. Well, when you have an asset this thin, if you have a, a buyer who's like, yeah, I'm going to keep on buying, I'm going to keep on putting all this money in, that's kind of, you know, putting a little bit of a floor, at least temporarily, because, you know, they'll run out of money eventually. I don't think uh, micro strategies can do this. Indefinitely, but you know, I was listening into this ridiculous call. But hold on, hold on, one second. He, putting he it, putting aside the fact that you think it's worthless, right? And I don't necessarily disagree with you. You know, Sailor obviously doesn't think it's worthless. So we, I just want to dispense with the term market manipulation because to him, he thinks it's he thinks it's going up. He thinks it's an asset. He thinks it's undervalued <laughs> for whatever fucking reason he thinks it. Whatever, who cares? But the, you know, there's a big difference between manipulating the market and just putting a bid under something, right? I just, well, I just I mean, want to clarify. Kind of market, I like, mean, because if you're going to if you're going to say he's manipulating the market, that's a that's a that's a lofty. No, I think charge. I think it is. Yeah, I think that's what it is because there's no inherent value in Bitcoin. It's not generating any earnings or any any dividends. So the only reason it's not crashing is because people are buying it. Uh, so you have uh, him buying it, and I think he's buying it to protect the position he has, so that the price won't drop. So it's like, you know, throwing good money after bad money to continue to buy into this market at the same time, spending pretty much every waking hour on every kind of platform there is uh, touting and pumping up Bitcoin and talking in all kinds of nonsense about how Bitcoin is hope and it's the greatest thing ever. And, you know, he was saying yesterday that gold is worthless now, that gold's going to go to zero, that nobody should own any gold at all, that they should just own Bitcoin because Bitcoin makes gold worthless. And if you're holding gold, you're going to lose everything. You know, this is just nonsense that is being espoused at the same time. He talks about Bitcoin going to two trillion or two billion, two million, rather two million dollars a coin. Uh, yesterday, you know, pumping it, trying to get people to go all in, to put their life savings into Bitcoin, to borrow money to buy Bitcoin. I mean, very reckless and irresponsible stuff. I mean, if he was saying this about a stock, I mean, it'd be illegal for him to own this big position and then, uh, you know, encouraging such reckless buying uh, from the general public. Um, but yeah, I think everybody who's in Bitcoin to a degree 
is manipulating it because that's how pyramid schemes work. You know, it's, you know, you only make money if you succeed in convincing other people to buy. He, he calls it red pilling or orange pilling or something. He, he wants everybody who owns Bitcoin to go out there and convince other people to buy it. Right. That's, you know, that's what happens in, 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 in this type of pyramid situation. It's you constantly have to con other people into buying into it and you have to, you know, come up with all this pie in the sky nonsense and the stuff that Saylor says, you know, he uses big words and he talks about a lot of uh, interesting things, but it's all irrelevant. It's all, you know, one BS point after another, none of it is actually true. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of people he preaches to the choir most of the time. And so everybody is like, amen, whenever he says some nonsense about Bitcoin, but if you're if you're thinking about it rationally, you know it it looks so completely ridiculous, or it sounds completely ridiculous. Everything he's saying. Well, let me ask you a question. Does it bother you that you know? And this is something that I wrote about last week, or I talked about on my podcast. I can't remember, but the fact that Bitcoin, you know, look, all cryptos now are combined. I think worth several trillion dollars, right? Does it bother yeah, you? Two and a half trillion, almost three trillion, something okay. like that. Does it bother you? <laughs> That crypto as a quote unquote asset class, does it concern you that that quote asset class is being so closely intertwined with the rest of the financial system? Does, is that something you think about? Because look, if they're right, okay, then crypto's the future and everything should be okay and whatever. But if you're right, or even if things come down on your side even further, like say Bitcoin keeps some kind of bid, but the rest of these, you know, altcoins go to zero or something. But if you're even close to right, what we're doing is intertwining a multi-trillion dollar asset class with the global financial system. I mean, does that concern you at all? Don't you think that lacks any kind of foresight at all? Well, you know, first of all, I think it's just another manifestation of the everything bubble. That exists. I think that this fixation with cryptocurrencies, when historians look back at this particular time period, I think the crypto craze will be, you know, really one of the primary examples of, you know, the popular delusions and the madness of crowds for this particular bubble. But, you know, all assets in the bubble are overpriced. It's just that the cryptocurrencies are the most overpriced because they have actually no value. You can look at a stock like Tesla, and it's very easy to say that there's no way that Tesla is worth what the shares are trading at, but clearly it's worth something. I mean, there is a viable business there. They make good products, and you know there's some value to Tesla. What the actual value is, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just sure that investors are overpricing the stock right now, and they don't really care because it's just a momentum thing. Uh, and so the same thing applies to the cryptocurrencies, except there, there's no value whatsoever uh, under, underlying them. And I don't see any difference between Bitcoin and Shibu Inu or any of the other coins. Uh, you know, it's all worthless as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, um, you know, I do think that to the extent that there's a lot of leverage that gets built up, you know, I know there was just an announcement yesterday, Coinbase is going to allow people to borrow up to a million dollars. And I think, you know, maybe 30% or 70% loan of value, I forget, where the, the only collateral for the loan is the cryptocurrency uh, that, that, you know, that's there. 
Um, to the extent that you get a lot of leverage, that could ultimately be a problematic for the overall economy when the debts go bad and and now there's counterparty risk and who's not going to get their money back and you know what dominoes are going to fall there. Um, I think obviously a lot of businesses have um, you know come into existence around the crypto ecosystem. I think you know a lot of people have been attracted to crypto because they see an opportunity to make money from crypto, not necessarily that they want to own crypto, but they see all the money and they want to, you know, get a piece of the action. They want to get involved in servicing uh, the demand for crypto. And so businesses are being created, uh, offices are being leased, workers are being hired. Ultimately, I think all of this capital is going to be proved to be a malinvestment. I think a lot of these workers are going to lose their jobs. So depending on how many crypto related uh, jobs there is, uh, you know, that's, you know, tells you what kind of impact, you know, this bubble is going to have on the overall economy when it pops, you know, as far as the losses to the individual investors, I think most of the losses are just on paper because obviously, you know, it's easy come easy go. I mean, somebody might've put $10,000 into Bitcoin and now it's worth five million. You know, if it goes back down to ten thousand or five thousand, they lost five thousand. They didn't lose the five million because they never really had the five million. Now, to the extent that you know they made decisions believing they had five million dollars, and then it turns out that they didn't. Obviously, they may have made a lot of bad decisions uh, based on wealth that they they really never had. Um, you know, so obviously some people who put serious money into crypto, people who put their retirement savings into crypto, uh, who are nearing retirement age. I mean, obviously there's going to be some serious damage there uh, because they're not going to be able to recover what they lost. But I think the majority of people who are in crypto are very young. And so, you know, they can afford to lose everything. And uh, I think it'll be a valuable lesson for some people. Uh, you know, the lesson learned may be worth the cost, you know, so maybe it will prevent them from making similar mistakes in the future, you know, with larger quantities of money. Right. Do you think crypto's size now makes it systemic? Again, it just depends on the, the counterparties and the debt. Um, I mean, in and of itself, if the crypto bubble popped in a vacuum, I don't think it's that big a deal, but if the crypto bubble pops along with all the other bubbles, right? And we see a crash in the NASDAQ, for example, and all these overpriced momentum and mean stocks. And so if all that goes down together, then yeah, I think the crypto problems will, will add to the overall problem. But if it's just crypto and nothing else, then it's, it's probably not, but don't that big a deal you outside, think, you know, the universe of people who own it. Don't you think if crypto goes to zero or say crypto, you know, they say the entire asset class takes a 75 percent haircut. I mean, don't you think that is a would immediately cause a sell off, especially in exactly what you just talked about? Tech names, meme stocks, <clears throat> because you have the same unsophisticated investors with the same hot money. Uh, buying AMC as you do buying Shiba Inu, you know, uh, you know your Benjamin Graham intelligent investors aren't out there buying Shiba Inu. Uh, they're not out there buying AMC at a thirty billion dollar valuation or whatever it's at, right? So don't, don't well, you the think valuation doesn't matter. 
right? You don't buy AMC because you think you're getting a good value. You buy it because you think some other idiot's going to pay more, right? So it's the same <laughs> dynamic. But but you're right. It's possible that a collapse in crypto could set off a collapse in other risk assets or the other way around. I mean, so, you know, you don't know what's the chicken and what's the egg. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I'd say a crash in the NASDAQ probably means that we'll probably have a crash in crypto. But would could crypto be the the dog that wags the, the NASDAQ kale is it, or is it going to be the other way around where the, the, the overall stock market is the NASDAQ, that's the dog and, and crypto uh, is, is the tail, but that is certainly a risk. You know, when all these people, like when I was listening to that nonsense yesterday on Twitter with Saylor and when he was saying gold is going to go to zero, he said, look, gold is down over the last year while crypto is up. And that proves that gold is worthless and no longer an inflation hedge. And what Saylor doesn't understand, or maybe he understands it and he's lying about it, but crypto going up has nothing to do with gold. Crypto is going up for the same reason that AMC went up or GameStop. Or crypto went up because it's a speculative <clears throat> asset and everybody wants to speculate. Nobody wants an inflation. Oh, shit. Did I lose you? No, I'm here. Okay, okay, sorry. What yeah. were you saying? Nobody, nobody wants inflation. They don't. People aren't worried about inflation. They think it's transitory, or they think the Fed is going to do something to stop it. People want risk. They don't want safety. They want to gamble. They want stuff that's going to go up. That is what's driving Bitcoin. Well, it's not that people are buying it as an inflation hedge. They're buying it because they think they're going to get rich. They think it's going to go to the moon. Right. That's not have it. That has nothing to do with buying something that's conservative. That's meant to protect your purchasing power from inflation. Right. Exactly. And, you know, the fallacy presents itself and, and has been really, you know, since I've been following Bitcoin for a couple of years in the, you know, uh, when when bulls and people that are advocating for crypto use the price comparison as a bull case. Right. Uh, if the bull case is it's up X amount in X amount of time versus gold or versus the S&P, and that's all you have for a bull case, well, that's not a bull case. And I've, and I've said on my podcast, that's the reason that anytime you see a financial commercial or you read a prospectus or you're doing any, you know, you're involved with any type of regulated financial asset, there is always a warning, usually the first warning that says past performance is not indicative of future <laughs> results, right? And so when your entire bull case leans on past performance, that's something to be wary of. But, you know, well, how, how, do you convince, how do you convince people that think that that, you know, that that backward looking indicator in a forward looking, uh, you know, uh, investment, really, which is supposed to be a forward looking investment, that that backward looking indicator isn't isn't a forward looking uh, investment case? <laughs> yeah, well, look, just because something's happened in the past doesn't guarantee it's going to happen again in the future. I mean, you can say it's in, in some way indicative, you know, maybe it will happen, but you know, you have to look at the dynamics and you also have to look at the size, you know, the fact that Bitcoin did so well when it was inexpensive, everybody just thinks, well, it's so easy for Bitcoin to double from where it is. Well, moving from 60,000 a coin to 120,000 a coin, that double is going to take a lot more money coming into the market than, you know, when it doubled from a dollar to $2 or $10 to $20 or even a thousand to 2000, you're talking about much, much bigger numbers. 
But the other problem with this idea that Bitcoin is better than gold because it's gone up more than gold. Well, I can say the same thing about Shibu Inu uh, versus Bitcoin. Well, wait a minute. The year-to-date gain on Shibu Inu is much better than the gain on Bitcoin, so Bitcoin's no good. Shibu Ibu is obviously the superior token. It's a better store of value. It's a better inflation hedge because you've, your Bitcoin has crashed in value year-to-date in terms of Shibu Inu. Right. So if, if all that matters is how much you've gone up, well, then obviously there are coins going up faster than Bitcoin, so Bitcoin has no value. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it because that that puts it in perspective. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, one of the biggest fallacies on the bull side of things. And people that are supposed to be relatively sophisticated when it comes to investing lean on that argument that here's what it did versus X over X amount of time. And it's like, all right, well, you know, Enron outperformed a lot of stocks for years and then it went to zero, you know, so it's like, okay. Well, the other problem with that argument is even if Bitcoin goes down to 10,000 from 60,000, you can make the same argument over the last 10 years, it's the best performing asset. So even if it goes all the way down to 10,000, because, you know, you're starting from pennies of Bitcoin. So, uh, it, it can collapse and still be the best performing asset going back since the inception. But what good does that do to people who paid 60000 for it when it's at 10000 uh, if it's still the best performing asset, except they, did, they bought it at 60000 Right, right, exactly. Um, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the Fed uh, decision this past week here and get your take my take was pretty much that was about as dovish uh of a fed decision you could get while still maintaining the taper uh in every you know they every time powell was asked about rates uh he couched everything that he said uh you know i want to get your take is the taper going to have any kind of effect i mean the market seemed to love it this week stocks continued to rally the, the sentiment isn't that things are undervalued, Peter. The sentiment is that the party's not over yet, right? Uh, because rates well, aren't going to tick up. What's your take? Well, first of all, I mean, it could have been a little bit more dovish. They could have started the taper in December instead of November. So I guess that was the one thing that you know they did. But you're right. Um, Powell did everything he could to take the sting out of it. Uh, meanwhile, the markets had pretty much fully priced it in, uh, embraced it, um, it would have surprised the markets had the Fed not announced the taper. And so what we do know at this point from looking at the Fed is the Fed never wants to surprise the markets. It wants to give the markets exactly what it expects. And as long as the markets expect something and they're going up, then the Fed is willing to deliver because the, the, the market is basically blessing it. So the right. Dow is on record highs the day the Fed is supposed to announce the taper. So basically it's like, you know, Powell puts his finger in the air and, 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 and tests the temperature. And if the market's making new highs, expecting him to taper, well, he's, he'll taper. If the market was tanking, he probably, they wouldn't have done it, right? So they, <laughs> they wanted to make sure that the market was okay with it. Now the question is, the market thinks the taper's okay, but if the taper results in a big backup in long-term interest rates, then it won't be okay. The market will tank if that happens, right. in which case the Fed is going to have to call off the taper, which it left the door open to doing because it said that, hey, we're data dependent, which in my mind is almost market dependent because that's the big data that the Fed cares sure, about. Sure, sure. <laughs> so as long as, 
as as long as the Fed can reduce its bond purchases without bond prices falling and stocks falling, then it'll do it. But at some point, it's going to have an effect. But I also thought one of the most ridiculous comments he made was one of the reporters asked him, hey, you know, aren't you worried that you might be behind the curve here? Like you're waiting too long to raise rates because you're telling us that no rate hikes are coming. You know, we haven't even talked about it. We haven't even considered it. I mean, we haven't come close to meeting the criteria because Powell talked about how strong the economy is, how strong demand is, how strong the labor market is. The only thing he said was that we're not quite at full employment yet, which, you know, we rarely get full employment. I mean, there's been very few years where economists have agreed we're at full employment, right? Because, I mean, it's subjective exactly what level of unemployment will constitute full employment. And Powell just doesn't think we're at full employment yet. But then when this, I uh, was a woman, I think, asked him about, uh, you know, the rate, rate hikes and falling behind the curve, Powell said, no way, we're in no danger of falling behind the curve. We're not behind the core curve. And he said, as a matter of fact, it would be completely inappropriate to raise interest rates at this point. And I don't know of anybody who believes that we should be raising interest rates now, which to me has got to be a lie because he just talked about how strong the economy was and how we were well above the Fed's 2% target, yet it's inappropriate for the interest rate to be above zero. I mean, zero is the lowest rate you can have. It's the rate that we have in an emergency during a financial crisis. And now he's saying because we don't have full employment, rates have to stay at zero. So now, according to Powell, that unless an economy is at full employment, no matter how strong it is, rates have to be at zero. You can't even raise them to 25 basis points or 50 basis points until you get to full employment, wherever that is, because – you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. Nobody really knows, you know, what level of unemployment constitutes full employment. For all you know, we're at full employment right now because most of the people who don't have jobs don't want them. You know, so, you know, they're, they're not they're not looking. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, you know, that's probably why it was so well received by the market. I mean, the, the whole thing is ridiculous. I, I was listening to Palisades Gold Radio the other day, which, by the way, is a great podcast. I don't know if you've ever, li ever listened to that, but somebody was making the argument backed by data and an actual uh, research case that they were making. But I wasn't paying attention to the to the uh, methodology, but saying something like uh, if we if we hit 200 basis points on rates, if the federal funds rate goes to 2%, the housing crisis will be twice as bad as 2008. And they made a pretty, like, decent case for it. And so, you know, you hear something like that, and with every day that ticks by, you know that it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and so I, I just don't know. I don't know where it ends with rates. What do, you, what do you think will happen with rates? Do you think the bond market forces the move eventually or what? Well, I think it's going to be the dollar that ultimately forces the move because the Fed will keep printing dollars and buying bonds, right, right? To stop bond prices from falling. And so there is an unlimited number of dollars the Fed could print because it just decides that it's going to print them. And so to the extent that the Fed is going to draw some kind of line in the sand on rates and say, okay, we're not going to let the yield on the 10 year go above two and a half or three, wherever they decide is, the breaking point, right? The Fed could just 
you know, buy, you know, print whatever it takes. So the breaking point is the dollar because the Fed can keep printing dollars until the market has enough of them and doesn't want them anymore. And we have a dollar crash. And then the dollar crash creates a whole new set of problems right. for the Fed when it comes to inflation and bonds. So I think that's going to be the, the disciplinary uh, factor is going to be when does the money printing in order to suppress interest rates become a big problem for the dollar? And that's when the Fed has to reassess what it's doing and say, okay, we can't buy bonds anymore. And then that's all of a sudden now the bonds collapse because the Fed's bid is gone. And now the market has to find a real rate of interest. But given how high inflation is going to be by the time we get to that breaking point, that means bond prices have to implode and rates have to skyrocket, which means the entire house of cards in the financial industry that has been built on that foundation of right. low interest rates is going to collapse. That's going to, the bond market's going to crash. The stock market's going to crash. The, the, the housing market's going to crash all of it. And if the, if the cryptos haven't already crashed, well, they'll crash then, right? If they hadn't already crashed, you know, let me ask prior. you a question. Let me ask you a question because you know, you're talking about the bottom falling out from underneath the dollar. I saw last week that, uh, the, uh, the editor in chief for the global times, uh, you know, whose Twitter account is probably a mouthpiece for the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but the editor in chief who's, you know, vocal about his uh, uh, criticism of the United States on, on Twitter made some comment about, you know, what are we going to do? Keep printing dollars or something. And, you know, for a long time, I've kind of uh, you know, in doing my work in busting U.S. listed China based frauds and, you know, uh, working with some Chinese nationals, I've kind of gotten a sense for what I believe is the ethos of the of the Chinese government, which is that they do eventually want to usurp uh, th being the world's number one economic superpower and global superpower from the U.S., that they have a lengthy, probably generational plan to do so, and that they're very smart and shrewd when it comes to business and when it comes to economics. I want to ask you, if you were, just to play devil's advocate, you know, if you were Xi Jinping right now, Peter, and you were in the driver's seat of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese economy, and you wanted to do that. You wanted in your term, in the next 10, 20 years, ensure that China passed the United States on the uh, global economic highway. What would you do? What, 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 what policies would you put into effect in China? Well, obviously, I would want the Chinese economy to be the freest economy that it could possibly be. So I wouldn't have the same approach that the current government has now. I would want, uh, you know, as much economic freedom as possible and as little government involvement in the Chinese economy through regulation or subsidies. So I would completely, you know, get away from that. And I would want to go back to a gold standard. I would be looking at, you know, the massive uh, reserves that the central bank of china now holds in in fiat currency right particularly in u.s dollars and i would try while i could to convert as much if not all of those forex reserves into gold and and then and then fix the yuan in gold and um make it redeemable you know have do you a think, real do you think the digital currency. yuan you think the coming digital yuan will be backed by gold because there's there's a lot of people that 
have made the case, a lot of analysts in the world of precious metals that have made the case that China is stockpiling a lot more gold than people think or that they're letting on. Uh, do you agree with that? And do you think that the digital yuan will eventually be backed by gold? Well, I think if it's going to have any real value as a global reserve currency, I think you pretty much have to. Uh, and of course, you know, then you also have to trust the Chinese. So maybe the Chinese would have to work with third parties holding the gold because people may, may be a little suspicious that, you know, because look what America did. Like we screwed everybody over, right? Because the dollar at one point was redeemable in gold. And so people trusted the United States to give them gold for dollars and we screwed everybody over. We defaulted. And so if America can screw over its creditors, well, why not China? So that, you know, there's going to be a big trust factor there uh, when it comes. But obviously, China is the world's biggest gold producer. They don't export anything that they produce. So right. clearly that gold is somewhere in China. And I think, look, if you look at the Chinese crackdown on Bitcoin, I think they obviously have made their choice. They know that gold is more valuable than Bitcoin because they're trying to eradicate uh, Bitcoin from their economy. And I think they realize that it is a speculative bubble. They realize that it's a waste of resources. They realize that people are going to lose money. And so they are deciding that they are going to shut it down before it gets to be a much bigger bubble and limit the fallout for the Chinese economy, as opposed to the U.S., we're just letting this thing grow bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Because, no, I'm not saying that the government should interfere, but because they're not interfering, it is going to be a much bigger bubble, and the U.S. economy is going to lose a lot more when this bubble pops than the Chinese economy. And again, you know, listening to that call yesterday with Sailor, they're like, this is a great opportunity. This is a gift that China has given America because they're basically conceding this yeah. crypto market. <laughs> and now America gets to mine all this crypto. Yeah, we get to waste all these resources. Right. We get to waste all this manpower mining nothing. Right. Meanwhile, the Chinese gave up on this nonsense and they walked away winners because their miners sold out of all this crap. Right. Yep. They got in early and, 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 and bailed out. And now we're going to be the bag holder. So all the crypto mining is going to come to the United States, right? Just in time for America to be to hold uh, left, the bag. Uh, holding the bag. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So this, you know, the Chinese are going to look real smart having gotten out of Bitcoin. And the U.S. is going to look like a bunch of idiots for having gone all in. And that I agree with you a hundred percent on it. As a matter of fact, I wrote an article on my uh, blog, Fringe Finance, called uh, you know, is China sidestepping a crypto cataclysm? And that's exactly the argument that I made. You know, people seem to toss around, okay, well, maybe they don't want Bitcoin to compete with the digital yuan, and maybe that's what it is. And it's just like, people, fucking open your eyes. Like, they see that this is yeah. an extreme <laughs> risk asset, right? They see Plus, that it's, it's, it, it's built on nothing, and they don't want their... So their economy is going to be insulated, Peter, if the situation that we described earlier about, you know, crypto collapsing, their entire economy will be insulated from that if that happens. Right, and think about this. There are a lot of people in the crypto community, although some of the bigwigs are now backtracking on this because they don't want to anger the regulators, right? But... A lot of people in crypto think that Bitcoin is going to be the instrument of the dollar's destruction. It's Bitcoin that's going to dethrone the dollar as the reserve currency, and it's going to be replaced by Bitcoin. Well, if China 
if their goal is to dethrone the dollar and if they thought Bitcoin could help do that, then they would support Bitcoin, right? They would be promoting Bitcoin. So I don't think they see Bitcoin as a threat at all to the dollar. Right. You know, so they're, they're, they're just trying to protect their citizens because they, you know, they have an, ob they feel obligated. It's like a nanny state in a way in that you're a communist country and you're supposedly trying to do what's right for your people. Right. Now, I, I don't like that type of government. I like the people deciding on their own. But, you know, a lot of times people make foolish decisions and that's part of capitalism. But this is a situation where the government is making the smart decision for the people. The people were going to be dumb and gamble away their money. And the government said, no, we're not going to let you do that. <laughs> and so the government in this case actually saved the people from themselves because, you know, they were able to get out. And let's say whatever Chinese got out of Bitcoin because they made it illegal, they got out at a very high price, right? right? I mean, they didn't get out at the lows. <laughs> so they, they were able to cash out and make some money. Yeah, I, you know, speaking, let's stay on the Chinese. You know, I just made the argument also that they would be adopting nuclear probably quicker than uh, other countries, A, because they need the power in the country. They don't have time to bullshit with uh, alternative energy and green energy. And, you know, nuclear is clean energy as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the international stage to get them off of coal. Um, and, you know, they want probably the most pragmatic and quickest solution, which I've proposed is nuclear. Uh, I wanted to know if you pay attention to anything that goes on in the uranium market at all. Is that something that you've been watching? Yeah, I mean, I obviously watched the market. I mean, I had some exposure. I should have bought more personally. You know, when I first looked at it, I thought, hey, maybe uranium is going to run, you know, because everything else had started to move up. And this is when the stocks were still on the lows. So, yeah, I could have had a, a you know, much bigger uh, position there. Uh, but, you know, it, it, there, it, there is there are historic and notorious uranium bubbles. I mean, they happen, you know, you know, periodically. And so they're hard to really value a lot of these companies. And I think there's a lot of dynamics involved that 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 tend to boom and busts in the whole industry. So it's it's a lot riskier, let's say, than other types of stocks. But sure, there's plenty of upside and there's lots of downside. So it's not for the faint of heart. And, um, you know, it's a, a lot of it is uh, just managing your positions, you know, taking right. some profits and just, you know, making sure that if the market crashes 80 or 90 percent, that you're not giving giving it all back, you know. Right. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of positive fundamental factors that could drive the price higher. But then there are things that could happen that could crash it, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I but but you know, in an inflationary time period. You know, lots of stuff is going to go up. To me, commodities, right? The one thing that's not going up, yeah. But lots of commodities are going up. The ones that aren't going up are gold and silver, and you know, but they're ultimately going to make the biggest move. It's just that right now, again, nobody is worried about inflation. Everybody is profiting from inflation. In that, inflation has mainly worked its way into financial assets. So. That's where people are seeing the inflation. Their stock prices are going up. Their real estate prices are going up. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, what might happen if Bitcoin crashes. One thing that might happen is that real estate in my neighborhood might crash because you would not believe the price of houses. Look, houses, houses that people were buying when I first moved here for about a million dollars, right? Uh, even a little less. They're now at like $10 million. 
And almost all of that movement has happened in the last year or two. You know, yeah. whereas you could have still bought those houses for two million, uh, you know, last year. Now they're up on now they're on the market for ten million or more, and some of them are trading. And you know, and, and the houses that were the higher end houses that were seven eight million, now they're upwards of thirty million. I mean, the biggest percentage gain was on the lower end. I mean, the, the lower end has gone ballistic. Uh, to the point where, you know, the lower end is now a $10 million house. Uh, but a lot of this is crypto people coming to Puerto Rico and just with stupid money willing to pay stupid prices. And, and so, yeah, you know, Bitcoin crashes, you know, that's, you know, there, it certainly could have a fallout on the real estate market over here, you know, and there are other, probably other pockets around the world where crypto has had a big influence, certain cities, you know, uh, Miami or whatever, the ones that have become meccas for the crypto industry, where you have maybe more employment, uh, more tax revenue uh, associated with it, you know, so those 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 local economies will be more heavily impacted uh, when the market crashes. Yeah, let me I want to pivot real quick because uh, we had the uh, big Virginia governor election and, you know, a couple of elections uh, earlier this week. And I wanted to kind of get your take. We don't talk a ton about politics. We spend a lot of time talking about the economy. But, um, you know, I like your take on the uh, political atmosphere when you do offer it up. And this is something that I don't think you've talked about on your podcast yet, at least uh, to the point where I'm caught up. Um, you know, Virginia went red after a good showing for Biden in the presidential election. And New Jersey got very, very close, uh, but ultimately stayed with uh, Phil Murphy, the Democrat. But it was way closer than people thought that it was going to be. I wanted to kind of get your take on what catalyzed uh, these quick shifts over the course of just a year in voting sentiment. Does it have to do with the economy and inflation, what's going on? Does it have to do with COVID? Does it have yeah. to do with our president? You know, what do you what do you think's going on in the political atmosphere right now? Well, first of all, we know it's not the market because I read the other day that the stock market in the first year since Biden was elected has had a bigger gain than in in history for the first year following any presidential election. You know, including the one we just had where Trump always bragged about how much the market went up after he won the election. Well, it's gone up even more in the year since Biden beat him. And, you know, it was interesting, too, because Trump always said, if you vote for Biden, the stock market's going to crash, right? Because he wanted to claim credit for the rally. Well, Biden won, and we've had an even bigger rally than the one we had after he won, which, again, proves that it's got nothing to do with Biden or Trump. It's all the Fed. This is just a gigantic bubble, and neither uh, political party could claim credit for it. It's the Fed that really deserves the blame for inflating the bubble. But the reason I think that the public um, had buyer's remorse, you know, with Biden and the Democrats is because the economy is actually in bad shape. Thanks mainly to inflation. If you look at the voters, uh, the biggest in issue, number one issue for the voters was the economy. And the economy is usually only an issue when it's bad. If the economy is good, it's like, okay, no one's worried about the economy, and now they vote based on other things. It's when the economy is bad that the election turns on the economy. And because 
this the Virginia race where you know you hadn't had a Republican win a statewide race in Virginia since 2009, and Biden won by double digits. He didn't just barely win. He you know he won big a year ago, and now he lost. It's because the people in Virginia are struggling. You know, it doesn't matter that the stock market is up. It doesn't even matter if their nominal wages are up. Their cost of living is up more. And they're dealing with the consequences of inflation. And, you know, this shows you that the economy is bad. And, you know, it's going to get worse uh, between now and the next election. And, you know, the Americans have American voters, you know, they have very short memories and they generally blame whoever's in power for whatever problems happen to be around. So uh, you would think that uh, the Democrats are not going to hold on uh, to either House of Congress. You know, I, I think that I think the Republicans will probably get the House and the Senate in the midterms. Uh, and so to the extent that the Democrats want to get anything passed, they have a, a, a short window to get it done. Yeah, I think the inflationary environment has a lot to do with it. I think uh, a lot of people that, you know, have vo- went, voted for Biden in the presidential election, I think maybe having buyer's remorse uh, at this point, because there really hasn't been much that he's done uh, with extraordinary competence since he's been in office. If you ask me, I was trying to think about something objectively the other day, like, all right, well, really, what's what's gotten better? You know, the border hasn't really gotten better. You know, somebody made, I was watching uh, Bill Maher last Friday, and he asked that question of a guest, you know, somebody that was trying to defend Biden. He was like, and his answer was, well, you know, he got us out of Afghanistan. It's like, all right, well, when that disaster, <laughs> when that disaster is your positive, right, there, there's a big problem. Um, so, yeah, well, look at the collapse in his, uh, in his favorable ratings, because he, he came in with a bit of a honeymoon, and People looked at him favorably. I mean, he's crashed more than Trump crashed uh, in popularity. I'm not sure if he's less popular now than Trump, but you know, he probably will be if he's still president in 2024. If he if he goes up for re-election, but most likely he's going to step down at some point, right? And it's going to be Kamala Harris. That's what I've written. Um, I wrote that he's not <laughs> going to finish up his uh, his term. I mean, you know how he can't even handle a press conference at this point, right? I mean, they rush him out of there. He reads like a statement and then he's gone. I mean, why even call a press conference if you're not going to talk to the press? Just read the statement from the Oval Office. The whole point of having all the members of the press gather is so you could take questions. But if you get all these reporters into a room, supposedly risking COVID, right? You're getting them all into this room and then the president comes out reads you know on the teleprompter a five or ten minute speech and then immediately turns around and walks out without taking a single question right what is the point it's all a show they want to pretend he's giving a press conference even though he's not he's making a speech and he's leaving and he can do that from the oval office without you know without going in public yeah yeah all right well peter i want to thank you so much i know we have a limited time constraint today but thank you so much for coming on as always and uh, hopefully we get a chance to talk soon. And also, I, I like that I've been seeing you on the news once in a while. I mean, it's because we're in an inflationary environment, which sucks. But uh, it's good to see out there on the mainstream media a little bit more on Fox News and on RT uh, more than usual. Not that much. I mean, although I was going to be on Fox Business the other day, but unfortunately I couldn't do it. I had some regulatory thing that I had to take care of, you know, uh, all this government regulation. So I was uh, tied up doing that and I couldn't make 
the the Fox business. So hopefully they'll they'll reschedule me. But look, you know, the best place for anybody who is interested in hearing what I've got to say, it's not going to be on the mainstream media uh, because I rarely am invited to express my opinion on the mainstream media uh, because I guess my opinion is falls outside the mainstream. Of course, it happens to be right because the mainstream <laughs> is completely wrong. Um, everything that's happening right now is basically what I've been saying was going to happen. Uh, but if you want to hear my perspective, then just listen to my podcast. I mean, I'm doing them. I got one I put up yesterday. I'll probably do another one Friday or Saturday. We got a big jobs report coming out. So I'll be, uh, giving my take on that as well as the markets. And, you know, I talk about, you know, politics too. It's a good podcast. So you can listen at shiftradio.com. You can listen on my YouTube channel uh, and, you know, or any place else, you know, iTunes, Stitcher. There's all these various places where you can listen and download podcasts. So make a habit of tuning in. Follow me on social media. You know, I'm getting close to 600,000 now on Twitter. So that seems to be where I've got the most followers. So, but, you know, I'm getting close to half a million subscribers to YouTube. But, you know, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on Twitter. I'm on Instagram now. Uh, Facebook, so you know, follow me on those platforms. TikTok gr and Grinder. Well, I, I, I haven't started TikToking yet. That's that demographic is a little bit young. I mean, you know, Instagram is young too, but TikTok now you're talking about you know kids, <laughs> really, really, really young. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind getting to those guys on econ on the economy, but I'm not sure they're on TikTok because they want to learn about economics. You know, they want to see girls jiggling and stuff. So uh, <laughs> I was going on over there. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, or guys jiggling, if that's what your thing is. But um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't made it, you know, into, into TikTok. Uh, but most importantly too, is to follow my investment strategy, either do it yourself. You can also use my mutual funds. Uh, the Europe Pacific funds are on most platforms. Certainly all the large discount brokerage houses. Uh, if you have accounts there, you can buy the Euro-Pacific funds. I've got a, a global value fund, a global dividend payers fund, an emerging market fund, a gold fund, and a foreign bond fund. So a whole family of funds to get out of the dollar, get out of U.S. financial assets, get into things that will do well during inflation. If you want to work with me directly, if you want me to help you manage your portfolio directly, you know, you can contact my representatives. Uh, Europe Pacific Capital, it's europac.com is our website, or Europe Pacific Funds, uh, EPAC, F-U-N-D-S, E-P-A-C, F-U-N-D-S.com. That's the asset management company here in Puerto Rico. So I've got reps here in Puerto Rico that can work with you. We've got guys still in the U.S. at the broker-dealer uh, that can help work with you and build portfolios uh, that may consist of my funds or individual stocks. You can work directly with the reps they can help you craft a portfolio or you can just have a managed account where I actively manage the portfolio for you on discretion. Uh, but, you know, before the bottom drops out of these overpriced markets, you know, you want to get rid of, you know, U.S. stocks and bonds, get rid of dollars and, and build a, a quality portfolio of foreign stocks, both developed and emerging markets get exposure to commodities and other natural resources, and in particular, uh, the precious metals. That's, I think, uh, where you get the biggest bang for the buck right now. They are just giving away a lot of these mining stocks. And so, you know, while the sale is on, people should take advantage of it. All right, Peter, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, let's check back all in right, in Chris. a couple months. All right, buddy? All right. And, yeah, keep, keep 
pestering Michael Saylor, keep offering to you know to uh, moderate a debate. You know, I will host because- that debate, and, and this is now <laughs> you know it's on the public record. Peter Schiff wants the debate. If Michael Saylor wants to come on, I'll make sure it's an everybody, objective, uh, fair debate. Everybody keeps everybody keeps inviting him on, but he won't do it. I mean, I don't know. I wonder would people buy tickets if we had a boxing match? I don't know. No. <laughs> well, there's no point in boxing because that doesn't have anything well, to do with your that, investment thesis. Or, or, or uh, oh, what's his name? Um, uh, um, uh, Max Kaiser. No, no, because you know I did, I did oh, the um, the uh, the Logan Paul podcast. They haven't aired it yet, but I did Logan Paul's podcast, and he's got a big, you know, he's got a big gym down there. He's got a, a, a boxing ring, but you know they're they're making tons of money promoting these fights. I mean, it's crazy how much money they make for these exhibition fights. So I don't know if anybody would pay to see me and me and, uh, and, and Michael Saylor, you know, mixing it up in a ring. I'd much rather have you both on <laughs> to just talk about your investment theses and just have it. Like I said, Bitcoin we can gold. <laughs> you can each submit three questions so that it's fair. There'll be six questions and maybe I'll put one or two questions <laughs> in. I'll give you the exact same amount of time to answer each other, make opening and closing statements. So Michael Saylor, if you want to do it, you got a platform to do it here with Peter. Otherwise, we're going to assume that you don't want to do it. All right, Peter. Thank you so yeah. much, brother. All Let's right. talk soon. All right. Take, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was the one, the only Peter Schiff. My man. Love talking to him. The guy that actually got me like into Austrian economics. Stoked to have had him on, and we'll check back in with him in a couple months. But for right now, fools, I got shit to do. Check out my blog, Fringe Finance. The link is in my podcast description. I am out of here. Peace.